The legends are true. But overwhelming power! The sauce of destiny. Yes! The most legendary sauce has arrived as McDonald's transforms into the anime world of Wickdonald's. The greatest flavors unite in all new savory chili McDonald's sauce to make your 10-piece Nuggets, fries, and Sprite ultra-powerful. Unlock manga comics with every meal and sit down for a new anime short every week only at Wickdonald's. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba, go! And participate in McDonald's for a limited time while supplies last. Welcome to the Three Down Nation podcast. I'm Justin Dunk, joined by John Hodge and J.C. Abbott. Today, we're discussing Nathan Rourke garnering international attention for his NFL preseason debut. The Riders looking to cover a massive spread at home. Eugene Lewis making his return to action for the Edmonton Elks. Trey Ford's impressive start to the CFL season. And Brandon Dadridge returning for the Ottawa Red Blacks. But first... The Edmonton Elks have parted ways with President and CEO Victor Quee in what was termed as a mutual decision. Tom Richards, the chair of the team's board of directors, didn't provide any clear reasons for his dismissal. He also indicated that the status of head coach and general manager Chris Jones is solid. Hodge, what do you make of this mess? Well, it's a mess, right? I mean, that's, I think, a more than fair term. Uh, the news was kind of shocking. There have been some folks on social media who have tweeted, former team employees who have tweeted about their displeasure with Quee's behavior behind the scenes. Also, reportedly, there are a couple of senior people in the organization who are currently on stress leave, I suppose, potentially due to their interactions with Quee or expectations that Quee had that they felt were unreasonable. I don't want to speculate about any of that, it being true, it being not true. But suffice to say, the Edmonton Elks obviously are a complete mess on the field. Off the field, they are also a mess. They lost $3.3 million last year. Tom Richards was unwilling to speculate as to how much money they would lose this season. In the press availability, by the way, he spoke for about 20 minutes. I think on five or even six separate occasions, he implored fans to come back into the stadium and buy a ticket and support their local team. That's how concerned he is. He made it clear the team is not in financial trouble, but did make it clear that he does have financial concerns. The team had a $15 million stabilization fund heading into the COVID-19 pandemic. That has already been drawn down to $11 million, and presumably they're going to have to draw down a bunch more money to get through 2023. So again, on the field, the Chris Jones thing is preposterous. Right. Like Chris Jones, just looking at his four and 23 records, should not be the head coach and the general manager of the Edmonton Elks at this point. But clearly the board's got his back. And to me, the real fireable offense here for, for Victor Quay was redoing Chris Jones deal. Chris Jones signed four one year deals without at the end of each year of that contract when he joined the team as the head coach and general manager prior to the 2022 season. And Victor Quee went on national television a month ago and said, oh, no, 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 no. What are you talking about? No, four one-year deal. That's not true. No, he's got a four-year deal. And lo and behold, that's because Victor Quee redid the contract this past offseason. There is a buyout, but um, parting ways with Chris Jones is not free and clear as it might have been a year ago. And to me, that's ultimately the reason that Victor Quee should have been gone in Edmonton. As much as I thought a lot of his ideas were innovative and and frankly I thought some of them were great right we talked about them here some of the promotions the club was doing the outreach the events that were hosted at Commonwealth including the combine boys which we all really liked we were at that event in person thought it was fantastic at Edmonton um ultimately when when you when you have a 4 and 14 head coach you give a bunch of money to when you've just finished paying off all of these debts that you've had to these other coaches and people you've fired is pretty inexcusable Absolutely, Hodge. That is the key point here. And I've seen it floated out there on social media since this news became public that, you know, Quee's not the problem with the team. It's Chris Jones. And that's not Quee's fault because he was hired after Chris Jones was hired. And that's true. But he did not have to go in last offseason and guarantee the rest of Chris Jones's contract, or at least two more years of it. It appears as if they will be on the hook for 12 months of salary for Chris Jones after 
the date in which they fire him. So if they let go of him after this season, they would have to pay him out for 2024, but not 2025. But either way, that's not a situation this team had to be in, right? Victor Kui went in and made that decision. And beyond that, gave two-year extensions to most of Jones's key assistants. That's why Stephen McAdoo was not fired as the offensive coordinator. He was moved into a senior advisor role is because they'd be on the hook for that salary too, which is extremely unusual in the current CFL where everyone is getting one-year contracts as an assistant because you don't want to be put in a situation where you're going to be on the hook for that guy's salary going forward. Victor Kui seems to have ignored that, and he's put the team in an extremely difficult position in regards to the league's coaching and football operations cap. Now, there was a lot of things that Victor Kui said over the last year and a bit that, that I quite liked, right? He seemed to say the right things. His heart seemed to be in the right place, but ultimately the results didn't happen, right? There is no shining success that you can point to. And when you make mistakes of that magnitude, there do have to be some consequences, especially if these rumors about a toxic work environment are true. I don't really think this has anything to do with the team's 0-9 record. And Victor Kui was not there at the start of this terrible losing streak that they've had at Commonwealth Stadium. So I don't necessarily think this decision was because of that. I think it was more about what was going on behind the scenes. And we've seen some of the stuff on social media. You guys have referenced it already. But I think on the flip side of this, we got to recognize Victor Kui is very passionate about the Edmonton Elks, the green and gold football team in Edmonton there that he grew up cheering for as a kid. And he went and built a giant billion-dollar empire in one championship, essentially the same as UFC, but over in Asia. And he didn't need to take this job as the Elks president financially or even to waste his time with it, let's say. He was committed to this team. I think he had a lot of great ideas, and he had to fix a lot of what Chris Presson wrecked In his short stint as a president, that hire was an absolutely atrocious one by the Elks board directors. That's on them. Kui had a lot of work to do, and I thought he was, based on all you hear and even talking to Kui and people in that organization in the city of Edmonton, doing a decent job of contacting to the fans, listening to them, what they want to be able to come back to that team and do better and enjoy the franchise. And he would go out during games and sit with fans. So, This is the stuff that I don't think we're going to hear about. There's going to be a lot of piling on Victor Kui right now, rightfully or wrongfully. But I think there's some important balance here because Kui is a very forward-thinking person. Like he told me when I sat down with him during the combine when we were all there that he had to view the Canadian market much different from Asia. And I think he had some forward-thinking ideas. But based on what you heard behind the scenes, I think he got – Maybe frustrated isn't the right way to say it, but something like that at the lack of progression that maybe the CFL wanted to make. I think he's used to building up an empire and spinning up a private business as fast as he can. Now, the CFL is unique. I know we're going to hear that from Mr. Abbott here and sort of his retort to what I'm saying. But I thought Quee overall was a net positive for the Elks. Yes, Making Chris Jones's deal essentially fully guaranteed for four years with an out that pays him out for one year was a massive mistake. Like he got sweet talked, let's say, charmed into that deal by Chris Jones. They should have kept it on those four one year deals and had flexibility. But Tom Richards said the Elks aren't even done yet paying Brock Sunderland and Jamie Elizondo. So, yet again, another terrible decision by the board and Presson to sign those guys as long as they did. So, I don't think all of this is on Kui. He had to deal with the ramifications of multiple poor decisions from the board and Preston before him. But I would imagine that on both sides, and this does seem like it was initiated by the board, that there was some frustration from Kui and also the board didn't want to see their team continue losing football games and felt like they had to do something and their hamstrung by the football operations cap. So now we arrive at Kui parting ways. Well, the Elks did say, and Richards, frankly, I thought this was a bit surprising. He wasn't sure when Elizondo 
is going to be off the books or when the team's former GM Brock Sunder won't be off the books. But he did say they are mostly off the books. He said if there are any payments beyond 2023, they are very small payments. He was also asked about whether or not the team would pursue private ownership because they've always been community owned um, or at least certainly have been for many, many decades. Used to be a financial powerhouse as essentially a nonprofit. Now, not so much. Um, And he said that is currently not something that they are pursuing. I will also say, and I'm not against private ownership. There has obviously been great, very successful private ownership regimes in the CFL. I don't get the sense that I've seen a lot. And granted, Alberta is a conservative province. I get all of that. But there seems to be this consensus in Edmonton that the reason this team is bad is because of the fact that it's public and private ownership would fix everything. And to that, I will just remind people that bad private ownership is bad ownership and good private ownership is good ownership. Good public ownership is good ownership and bad public ownership is bad ownership. You can have good or bad both. Right now, the Winnipeg Blue Bombers and Saskatchewan Rough Riders are both uh, publicly owned and those teams are killing it, right? And there's lots of privately owned teams who are not. So for all the people begging and pleading for the Elks to put a big fat for sale sign and give the team to the highest bidder, I'm not saying that's a terrible idea. I'm not even saying it's a bad idea. All I'm saying is this board hasn't managed to pick a president that works yet. Why would they pick an owner who can turn this thing around? Yes, if somebody like Amar Doman comes along, absolutely, you sell the team. But once you sell the team, you can't get it back, or at least getting it back would be very, very hard unless the owner truly falters or fails. So that's all I'm going to say about private ownership, potentially with the Elks, is be careful what you wish for, because if you sell the team, you got to sell it to the right person, because private ownership is not a net positive or negative. It's just private, and you better make the right call. And let's be frank here, Hodge, right? If they were to go with a private ownership model, if that had been something that was available two years ago, Victor Kui is the type of guy who has the money to make that purchase and become an owner, right? He's a guy who built a billion dollar uh, mixed martial arts empire in in Asia, as Dunk alluded to earlier. So he is one of those guys who has that cash. And if we had the problems this time around, certainly a status as an owner rather than a president wouldn't have necessarily changed that. We will never know what Victor Kui could have done as president of the Elks. I think that is the sad thing about this situation for all the positive things he said. Ultimately, the sample size is much too small to make any big statements about what he could have done on the business side. I know I was always more lukewarm on Kui than a lot of other people because despite those warm and fuzzy feelings and that deep attachment to the organization, I felt the way he positioned himself was a little bit cult of personality-esque. He was very public with his sort of ideas and genius and past success. And that gives me bad willies at times, to be entirely frank, because I don't think, as Dunk mentioned, that the CFL is a a direct equivalent to any other sporting enterprise. I don't think you can take success in one and immediately apply it to the CFL and have that same level of success. You can't run a mom and pop shop successfully in the same way you run a successful Walmart. Those are two entirely different business models that require two entirely different approaches. In some ways, I think that Kui understood that. He was very personable on a one-on-one level with fans. In other ways, I'm not sure he had fully learned the lessons of what the Canadian market is. One of the big successes he cited in interviews with Dunk was this big rise in social media numbers and presence by the Elks. He described it as sort of blowing other teams out of the water. Well, I did some digging. If you go on Twitter or Instagram, they're not even the most followed team in the province of Alberta. And let's be frank, the Calgary Stampeders haven't been particularly well run over the last little bit either. If you go on 
TikTok, while the BC Lions have double the amount of followers that the Edmonton Elks do. Really, where their success was isolated is on Facebook. And while that's all well and good, that is a massively popular tool in Asia for people of all ages. And it's not as much anymore in North America, where it's become sort of a tool for the older generation, certainly not as popular with people of my age. So Kui was using what had worked for him in the past. I'm not sure you would have seen massive amounts of success with that approach in terms of growing the Elks fan base going forward in the way that maybe he expected. And so I have some reservations about some of his big dreams and ideas and the fact that he didn't quite have the patience with his co-workers or the people under his employ, I think is telling about how things would have gone. Nathan Rourke garnered international attention for his preseason debut with the Jacksonville Jaguars, completing nine of 17 passes for 153 yards and a touchdown as well as six carries for 20 yards and a score along the ground. The most impressive play from the Canadian QB came on a 21-yard touchdown pass to Quadri Olison, which he delivered after stripping four potential sacks. What did you make of the performance? It was an incredible performance from start to finish, but let's just isolate that touchdown for a second because it may be the single greatest play I've ever seen made on a football field. I mean, the way he avoided four surefire tackles in that play before throwing the touchdown pass while he was being hauled to the ground, it was incredible. Just a feat of athletic achievement, unlike anything I've ever seen. And had this been in a regular season game, that would be the undisputed play of this NFL season and it electrified everyone. I was in BC place for the lions game when this happened and they showed that play on the jumbotron and the crowd went absolutely berserk on the first (laughs) watch. And then when it was replayed again, it was like this quiet excitement as everyone celebrated initially. And then we're like, wait, how did he do that? I don't even understand this. It was an incredible moment. And to see not only his teammates on the Lions on on the sideline cheer for his success, but also the Calgary Stampeders on the other sideline, his former opponents, do the very same thing and later in their own press conferences talk about how great that Nathan Rourke play was. I think it speaks volumes about not just how much the players in this league are supporting his level of success and rooting for him, but how this country as a whole is really rallying behind Nathan Rourke as sort of this next great CFL to NFL quarterback prospect. The first, uh, his first attempt to, to make it in the NFL was certainly something. And I think the best is yet to come. We've lost dunk due to technical difficulties for the rest of this episode, unfortunately, but then again, I suppose I will have to rave about Nathan Rourke in his stead because we all know that Justin Dunk is all things Mr. Canadian quarterback. This was a sensational play. I saw a clip from Pro Football Focus, this podcast, calling this a top five play in football history. On the one hand, that sounds remarkably hyperbolic, but then you watch the play again, you're like, actually, yeah, maybe. Now, this play did not happen in a regular season game, much less a playoff or Super Bowl. It happened right in the dying minutes of a preseason game between Jacksonville and Dallas. So it's unfortunate that it didn't get a larger audience. But then again, given the social media that we have, given the way in which these things can go viral, it is great that this got attention. I mean, hell, Patrick Mahomes was tweeting about this play, right, which is amazing. So I I love, by the way, that the Lions play this at their game. It's great that fans in Vancouver and from Nathan Rourke's home province, yes, he was raised primarily in Southern Ontario, but was born in BC, got the chance to cheer for their former star quarterback. And I love that the country is rallying around Nathan Rourke because I wouldn't blame CFL fans who were cheering for him to fail, right? They want him back in the CFL. If he plays well down south, 
he's not coming back up to Canada, or at least he's certainly not doing that anytime soon. So I love that people are rallying behind Nathan Rourke, hoping that he achieves his dream of playing in the NFL. And certainly in a very short period of time, he has 100% shown that he belongs there. Obviously, he's not going to take the starting job away from Trevor Lawrence, who was the first overall pick in the draft in 2021, arguably the top quarterback prospect the NFL has seen in the last 10 years, certainly in the last five, right? And he was a pro bowler last year, all that stuff. But Nathan Work has made a name for himself in a very short time. I don't think any CFL fans were surprised to see that happen, given how sensational he was a year ago. But it is very impressive nonetheless. And if you haven't already, please do yourself a favor. Check out the highlight. It's on our page at 3downnation.com and watch it. And if you have watched it, do yourself a favor. Watch it again or again or again because it is unbelievable that play that happened. Super, super impressive. It is worth noting just how important performances like this and in particular, that play that really sticks in your mind will be for Rourke going forward. Because as you mentioned, Hodge, he's not going to be the starting quarterback in Jacksonville this season. That is undisputed Trevor Lawrence for the Jaguars hope the next 15, hey, even 20 years. And frankly, I'm not even sure if Rourke has a legitimate opportunity to grab the number two role for that team this season. They seem pretty set on having the veteran C.J. Beathard have that role and then keep Rourke as the developmental number three who can potentially take over as a backup in the future. But what a play like this does and a performance like this does is shows every NFL team, all the other 31, exactly who this kid is. So a few months down the line, if somebody's quarterback goes down and they're looking for options, well, what about that kid who lit it up in the preseason for Jacksonville? I wonder if he's available for the low, low price of a mid-round draft pick or something of that nature. And they can go out and get Nathan Rourke and bring him to a situation where maybe the path to a starting job is quicker or in the offseason when a team decides to move on from their quarterback because he's underperformed. Maybe we'll go out and get Nathan Rourke either via trade or once his contract with the Jaguars expires. If he has these types of performances, he will become a known commodity in the league, not just with the 11 other teams that worked him out, but with every single franchise that might potentially have a knee at quarterback down the line. And he can put himself in a position to make that leap to being a starter with a franchise other than the Jaguars, because it's not happening in Florida anytime soon. Well, and we know that when you're a high draft pick or you've got guaranteed money on your deal, the preseason doesn't matter. Well, when you're a guy who's an NFL rookie after playing the CFL for a couple of years, the preseason matters a whole heck of a lot. And clearly Nathan Merck is maximizing that opportunity right now. Nathan Rourke was the most outstanding Canadian in the CFL last season. Currently, Three Down Nations contributors voted for winners of all seven of the CFL's individual awards, with Chad Kelly coming out ahead of Zach Galaris and Vernon Adams Jr. for most outstanding player. Did our contributors get it right? This is going to be an interesting segment because the two of us here both had dissenting voices to this particular pick. I know, Hodge, you backed Zach Caleros. I backed Vernon Adams Jr. Everyone else seemed to back Chad Kelly as the MOP, and he's not a bad pick by any stretch of the imaginations. His uh, development into a legitimate star at quarterback for Toronto has been thrilling to watch. It's a big part of why they're at the top of the league right now and favored to repeat as Grey Cup champions. And it is fantastic for the league as a whole to have a young, exciting quarterback with some clout behind his name, having the level of success that Kelly has had. And boy, with his performance last week, it's hard to argue with him. But I personally think Vernon Adams Jr., if he had not missed those two games 
with injury and frankly missed three because let's not forget he went down in the first quarter of the game preceding his absence with that knee injury. He would be a slam dunk pink pick here. He has the highest um, yards per game of any quarterback in the league when you take all that stuff into account, barring that one poor performance against Toronto where he threw six interceptions. He's protected the football remarkably well. And in every single game this season, you can point to one, two, three, sometimes even four throws that are simply elite caliber, the best throws of the week. And while some other guys have made a few of those throws like Kelly or Caleros this year. Nobody has done it with the level of consistency in my mind that Adams has where every week, you know, he's going to have a spectacular ball placed in exactly the right spot. He has been remarkable in taking over the Lions quarterback job from Nathan Rourke. And right now he has my MOP vote, even if others disagree. So let me get this straight, JC. So you're saying, that if you ignore the game where he had six interceptions, and if he hadn't gotten hurt, that Vernon Adams Jr. would be the MLP. So, I hold up, refresh my memory. Do injuries and interceptions count when it comes time for awards, or do we get to just ignore those? I mean, I think you can ignore some. Oh, injuries. come on. No. Vernon Adams Jr. is not the and you MLP. Can, you, you, can, no, you, can, no. you can put it all in context, right? So if he's got nine interceptions and six came in one game, that is far no. you know, more impressive to me than a guy who has nine interceptions that came in nine separate no. games. No, I'm right? Sorry. Like there is context no, I'm to sorry. numbers. This, is a, this context. is a blatant Homer selection on the part of JC. I don't Abbott. even like Vernon Adams Jr. Let's be frank here. We we have beef. This is well documented. This is me rising above that to acknowledge his remarkable play. His remarkable play, which is a 13 to 9 touchdown interception ratio. No, I'm sorry. I, I think Vernon Adams Jr. has been impressive. He's been better than I thought he'd be. His completion percentage of 72% is remarkable considering how often he's putting the ball into tight windows down the field. But he's also throwing to what I believe is the best receiving core in the CFL. And he also has who I believe is the best offensive coordinator in the CFL in Jordan Maximic. The offense looked exactly the same, essentially, when Dane Evans took over, with the exception of the blowout in Winnipeg, which by your logic, I'm allowed to just discount because you're discounting an entire game from Vernon Adams Jr. when he threw six interceptions against the Toronto Argonauts. I am fine. Still threw for over 300 yards in that game. Well, hey, if you'd counted how many yards defensive backs got from the Argos, he would have had over 500 yards. Why don't we throw <laughs> those in since we're just making up the he rules? Only, he, o- he only had nine incompletions. It just you know so happened that six of them were interceptions. So, so what you're really saying is he had three incompletions because six of them were actually complete just to the opposition. Anyways, we're, we're getting into the weeds here. Exactly. Vernon Adams Jr. is not the MOP. He has a chance, I think, over the second half of the season to, to take that lead spot and potentially pull away from the pack. To me, this is a two-horse race completely. And by the way, JC was the only person to give Vernon Adams Jr. a first-place vote. I was not the only person to give Zach Kolaris a first-place vote. To me, Zach Kolaris is the MOP because he's got 16 touchdown passes so far this season. Chad Kelly only has 13. He also has more yardage than Chad Kelly, though it should be noted, Kelly has played one fewer game. So Kelly, I think, has that opportunity, given that he's got a game in hand, to take a step up in this race. I It was a very difficult decision for me. Obviously, more of our contributors voted for Kelly than, than voted for Kolaris. And Kelly has been a better runner this year, it should be said. He's, he doesn't even have 100 yards more than Kolaris, but he does have four more rushing touchdowns, which should play into it. So I've got Kolaris an inch ahead of Kelly at this point, but I'm certainly not offended by the choice of Kelly as MOP. I also think there might be a little bit of recency bias here because Zach Kolaris got hurt after looking really poor in the first quarter against Edmonton, while Kelly is coming off arguably his best game of the of the season so far in a game in which that team ran rough shot on offense, 44 points over the Ottawa Red Blacks. As we wrote in our awards piece 
for the week, JC, arguably not just the game of the week, but the game of the year this past week against Ottawa and Toronto. Some high-flying, wide-open CFL action. Uh, I don't know what was going on with Ottawa's secondary, but it's it, it's almost like one of those tag games you play in school where you're trying to stand as far away from the opposition as possible. That's what it looked like the secondary at Ottawa was doing this past week. A really poor week for their back end. But I'm not offended by the choice of Kelly. I am offended by the choice of Vernon Adams. He's got to have five more touchdowns and about half as many picks for him to be the MOP at this point. So I'm shocked that you gave him a first place vote. We'll just say this, and I, I, I want to point out one of the flaws in your argument. And you said Vernon Adams Jr. has the best receiving core in the league. And I think on, on surface level, there might be an argument there. I love BC's receiving core, but let's really dive in here. Lucky Whitehead has regressed incredibly, right? He's not the dangerous threat he once was. Dominic Rimes has missed huge chunks of time with injury and is now on the six game injured list. They have uh, Keon Hatcher, who is having a remarkable season, but missed the first three games of the season, all of which VA started. So most of their star receivers have missed at least some time due to injury. Vernon Adams Jr. is out here throwing bombs to Justin McKinnis, right? Like that's not exactly a star making turn. Meanwhile, you're giving Calaris full credit when he's throwing to, oh, just a bunch of bums like <laughs> Dalton Schoen, only the league's leading receiver a year ago. And, oh, Nick Dembski, who is having a career year as their top Canadian. And, oh, there's this guy named Kenny Lawler who's back, who's you know, wow. putting up 200 yards he, he's a game. Played three just games. a bunch of just a bunch of scrubs over there in Winnipeg, right? That no reason well, to argue I, that they hold have on, hold on, hold the on. best receiving core. You, in the you, you've got somewhat of a point, but let's not forget Lawler missed the first six <laughs> games of the year due to suspension. He's only played three. Dembski sat out for one while his wife welcomed their first child, partner welcomed their first child. And Dalton shown has been banged up since the, the game in which he, he got rocked. I believe that was against, uh, was that the BC? I can't remember which game it was. But anyways, fair point. Winnipeg receiving core has been very good as well, though has been, you know, without star players at times, just as BC says. Maybe that's a wash. But do you think, I'll, I'll put you on the spot. Who's the better OC, Jordan Maximic or Buck Pierce? Oh, that's that's a tough question. Uh, right Right now, I'm going to say Maximic Moving on. by Moving a hair. On. But I think Moving on. Thank you for your answer. <laughs> it's time to move on. The Edmonton Elks will visit the Hamilton Tiger Cats on Thursday. Whoa, 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 whoa. You're skipping. Okay, sorry. Go ahead. we got to talk on. more about the Kolaris injury. Yeah, this is just a lack of professionalism from the people over here voting for Zach Kolaris for MLP. Keeping with Caleros, the Blue Bombers franchise passer went down with a neck injury this past week following a questionable hit from Edmonton Elks defensive lineman Tony Ely. Mike O'Shea challenged the hit for roughing the passer, though the ruling on the field was upheld. Should the play have been penalized? Obviously. Like, obviously. This isn't even a question. The The criteria for roughing the passer, and it's a quite, you can find it on my Twitter feed. It's quite a long description there are seven different ways in which a hit can qualify for roughing the passer i'm not going to sit here and read them all out however one of them is delivering a late blow to the passer after the ball is released i thought ely's hit was late but it's kind of borderline the second one is contacting the passer in an unnecessary manner including stuffing them to the ground violently throwing to the ground or landing on them with most of the defender's weight coney ely obviously did this and then C was delivering a blow to the neck or head of the passer. Again, Coney Ely obviously did this. And I know some people have said, well, you know, it's, it was, you know, Zach was, was more of a runner at that point because he was outside of the, no, he threw an interception on the play. By definition, if you're throwing a forward pass, you are still a quarterback. He was behind the line of scrimmage and there is no, uh, no wording in this description that makes an exception for guys who are either a out of the pocket or b diving headfirst. So to me, there is no way that this should have gone unpenalized. I will not be surprised if Coney Ely is fined this week 
when the CFL acknowledges that it made a mistake because it's clear as day that Zach Kolaris is hit in the head and his head gets wrenched violently to one side, causing the neck injury that he sustained. Now, fortunately, Kolaris jogged off the field under his own power. We all know, by the way, his history of concussions. He had five reported as a, a minimum, a minimum of five reported concussions from his time in Hamilton to the present. Three of those came in just a two year period with the Saskatchewan Rough Riders. Fortunately, it's not a head injury. It's a neck injury. My sources have led me to believe that if he does not play this week, it will be mostly precautionary, not dissimilar to how the BC Lions babied Vernon Adams Jr.'s knee injury a little bit, how the Toronto Argonauts held Chad Kelly out of the Calgary game after the ankle injury, because we all know the CFL season is a marathon, not a sprint. doesn't make sense to put your franchise guy in harm's way when you can just be patient, let the backup play. And oh, by the way, when Drew Brown came into that game, I tweeted that he is better than a lot of CFL starting quarterbacks, and I did not realize that was a hot take. I got so many replies from people uh, just aghast by what I'd said, and then he went out and threw for 300 yards of four touchdown passes. I'm not going to say I told you so because I've been wrong before, but if if ever like there's old there, there there's cold takes exposed right on Twitter where where you go ahead and you, you post things that people said that didn't come true. If there's an opposite, please send them my tweet because that aged like a fine wine. Unlike my hair, which is falling out and turning grayer by the day. Um, but regardless, the hit should have been fine. Hopefully Kolaris makes a full recovery soon. And thank goodness it is in fact a neck injury and not yet another head injury, not just for Kolaris' football career, but obviously for his health beyond football. Let me preface this by saying that despite my MOP vote, I have no ill will towards Kolaris. He's a fantastic player. The CFL is better off with him on the field. And I wish him nothing but good health because it would be truly devastating if this was another concussion and he's out for any length of time. But I'm going to vehemently disagree with you when it comes to this hit, Hodge. I don't think it was a penalty, and I'll tell you why. First of all, Zach Kolaros was outside the pocket. And let's be frank here, roughing the passer has a different execution to it when it happens outside the pocket versus inside the pocket because there's a run threat. Now, I think the Ely hit was slightly late, but defensively so. And the reason why is Caleros was escaping from Noah Curtis out on that edge who had his hands on him sort of, but Caleros took a couple of steps after escaping Curtis and then began to fall to the ground after he tripped himself up. And so Ely as a defender has very little way of knowing or anticipating whether Caleros is going to be deemed down by contact as a runner at that point, and certainly could not have expected Caleros to make the last minute on the ground uh, horizontal throw that he did because that's not a football play it's an absolutely egregious decision by Zach Kolaros that put himself in an extremely vulnerable position and it's not Ely's job to be able to predict that result he came in treating Kolaros as a runner like he was not knowing whether he was going to be deemed down by contact and laid the hit. It's on Caleros, in my mind, not to make a stupid throw and put himself in jeopardy. Roughing the passer is designed to protect a passer in the pocket when he's in no, hold on, though. a that's, regular that's vulnerable. not true. There is not a single thing in the record book that differentiates between. That's just something we say. I've read the rule. Book. There is nothing to do with being in the pocket. That is irrelevant. Okay, maybe not in the pocket, but a quarterback who was was in a vulnerable position because of a standard type of throw, right? That is, if not the letter of the law, that is the spirit of the law. Because quarterbacks, when they're stepping into a throw, they put themselves in a vulnerable position with their knees and things of the like, okay? But Kolaris wasn't in a normal throwing type of situation right? That is not what the rule is designed to protect. And so I don't think you can punish Ely 
for Calaris's poor decisions in this particular situation. He needs to protect himself in that situation. He made a poor decision, and not only did it cost his team on the scoreboard with a pick six, but it also cost him purpose, uh, him personally. And that's just the unfortunate reality. If you want to argue that it wasn't late, fair enough. Um, if you want to argue that Kolaris was out of the pocket, to me, that's again irrelevant because that's not written in the rule book. By the way, the word pocket does not appear in the CFL's rule book in any facet whatsoever. Uh, but to me, there's a hit in the head. And when you hit a guy in the head, who's a quarterback, I don't care what the circumstances, I don't care what the situation is. If they are still behind the line of scrimmage, in other words, a passer, that needs to be penalized 100 out of 100 times. The CFL does not have enough quality quarterbacks at the moment who are at least who are healthy. And we need to do everything we can in our power as a league, as members of the media, as fans, whoever you are, to make it clear that this is unacceptable when a quarterback is hit. Because guys will get hurt regardless. Jeremiah Masoli, non-contact injury, right? That could easily happen to any player in this league at any time. The last thing we need is injuries that are happening because of illegal hits. This was an illegal hit. I don't care what anybody says. You watch the replay. It's a hit in the head. You're not allowed to do that. It needed to be penalized. It should be fined, and I hope it is. I know the CFL communications have already tweeted out an explanation. They did during the game. It didn't meet the criteria. Well, I have eyeballs and can read, so I'm not an expert. But yes, it met the criteria. And if it doesn't meet the criteria, change what it says in your rule book to at least say, unless the quarterback is throwing the football in an unorthodox manner, then they're fair game. Even though they're the two-time reigning MOP, one of the most exciting players in the league to watch, who now could be shelved because we didn't do anything to protect them. That's that's my opinion. I'm so, I'm so glad you're leaking on your 20-plus years of refereeing experience to to make these these educated calls i don't have any refereeing experience but again i can read the english language and i have eyeballs so there there is what's written in a rule book and there's how a rule is then change the rule if you're not calling the rule as it's written why have a rule book that's how that's how our legal that's how our legal system works too it's called common law like it's a not everything that's written down is executed exactly as it is. There's important precedents. And to me, this didn't met, meet the previous precedent set. Now, if you want to flag it for a late hit to the head, you know, quite frankly, I'd be sympathetic to calling it a different penalty. I, I would be, but it's not roughing the passer. I'm, I'm going to be entirely frank on that. If you want to call it something else and, and deem it as, you know, a late blow to the head, okay. I think it's a bang-bang play. That's up for debate. But Calaris, in my mind, is not a passer in that situation. Even though he threw the ball. At all. He threw the ball. He, he literally delivered Eggie a pass, Buggy but he's not a passer. Anybody can throw the ball, Hodge. Well, then they're a passer. Anybody can then throw the ball. Then they're a passer. If a running back makes that play, he's, he's not protected in the same way. He's not Why in wouldn't a he throwing be? position. Why wouldn't he be if he throws the ball forward? Because he... We see Andrew Harris do it when he's about to lose 12 yards on the occasional pat, and it's very clever that he throws it. Any player who throws the ball should be protected like they are a passer because that's what the rules say. And if you're not going to follow the rules, change the rules. That's all I'm saying. That's not how the rule is interpreted on the field. Well, then it's goofy, and it should have been a penalty. The Edmonton Elks will visit the Hamilton Tiger Cats on Thursday night in a game that will see Eugene Lewis return to the lineup for the green and gold, while Scott Milanovic will helm Hamilton's offense for the first time following the departure of offensive coordinator Tommy Condell. Can the Tie Cats cover the five and a half point spread against the winless Elks? Man, I, I can't believe I'm about to do this, Hodge. Please, I need you to save me from myself in some way, but I, I don't think... I don't think they can. I'm not even sure they can win this game. Yes, it's the winless Edmonton Elks, but they've got to get a win sometime. And Trey Ford came into that game last week in his first week as the starter. And, well, he didn't blow everyone's socks off. He wasn't a 300-yard passing performance with four touchdowns or anything like that. I think he legitimately provided a spark to that offense and gave them another facet that hopefully – 
with another week to develop it, they can truly exploit against what is not a very good Ticats defense. And then on the other side, Scott Milanovic is riding to the rescue, but that's a lot to ask on one week. And Taylor Powell has not impressed me at all in his start. So I believe the Edmonton Elks might actually have the better quarterback in this matchup. And in a game between two extremely poor teams, I'm going to side with the better QB. And in this situation, it is Trey Ford and Edmonton. I'm going to say something crazy, JC. Something even crazier than, well, maybe not that crazy, but almost as crazy as your blatantly wrong opinion about the Zach Kolaris roughing the passer non-call. I'm taking the Elks to win, too. I'm going to watch this video back in a week and hate myself for doing this, but I am taking the Elks. They're going to win at some point. They've done nothing but lose, but honestly, I think it's easier for them to win on the road right now than it would be for them to win at home with all the pressure of that 22-game losing streak at home. I'm taking the Elks to win despite being five-and-a-half-point underdogs. I'm taking them. I am. The Winnipeg Blue Bombers will visit the Calgary Stampeders on Friday night, where they will look to cover a seven-point spread at McMahon Stadium. Zach Caleros hasn't practiced this week due to a neck injury, while Jake Mayer hasn't thrown a touchdown pass in three consecutive starts. You, Who you got in this one? So tell me again, how many touchdown passes does Jake Mayer have in the last three games? That would be And zero. how many touchdown passes did Drew Brown throw for last week in a relief effort? That was four. Okay, I'm taking the Bombers. I'm taking them not just to win, but I'm taking them to cover a seven-point spread. I don't think the Calgary Stampeders are a terrible team. I like their defense, uh, their special teams. Cover units have been surprisingly bad, but kicking game is great, right, with Rene Paradis and with Cody Grace. But that offense is miserable. And if you can take away the run game, this team has nothing. Like Jake Mayer has had one really good game in nine outings. So far this season, this team is three and six with good reason. I'm taking Winnipeg to win. I'm taking them to cover. And frankly, I don't care who's under center. I'm taking the Bombers. Yeah, it's shocking to say because Caleros has been the best quarterback in the league over the last three years. But the drop off from him to Drew Brown is almost nothing. Drew Brown is going to be a legitimate starter and future star in this league with one franchise or another. And he's going to get the chance potentially to audition for that role this week after blowing the socks off the Elks a week ago. I think he is going to do the same thing to the Stampeders. And if Dave Dickinson does not get more aggressive with his offense and stop being afraid of Jake Mayer doing in, uh, you know, impromptu turnovers and allow him to push the ball down the field. The Stampeders aren't going to have a chance in any game against tough competition. They cannot go the dink and dunk route again. Winnipeg is going to win this by a mile. The Montreal Alouettes will visit the Ottawa Red Blacks on Saturday night, where they are two-and-a-half-point favorites despite Kogi Fajardo reportedly being a game-time decision for the second week in a row due to a shoulder injury. These two clubs met in week one with the Owls coming out ahead by four points, though that was before Dustin Crum was at the controls for Ottawa. Can the Red Blacks cover the short home spread? I loved what we saw from Dustin Crum this last week. He needed to show that he could go through more than one read. He needed to show that he could air the ball out and be accurate with his passes, not just in short dink and dunk, but in true like intermediate routes with occasional deep shots. And he did that brilliantly, I thought, against the Toronto Argonauts. With that said, I think the Alouettes have been the most underrated team in the CFL this year. Right now, they are 5-0 and against every team that is not Toronto, Winnipeg, BC, which I would call clearly the top tier of teams in the CFL. Montreal has beaten up on that second tier, including everybody else, but obviously Edmonton, who I think is clearly by themselves in the bottom tier. With Cody Fajardo, I'm taking the Owls in this game. If Cody Fajardo doesn't play, I'm very happy to take the Red Blacks and get points here. Caleb Evans was exactly what I thought Caleb Evans was last week. He completed eight passes in the win. Fortunately for the Owls, they got the ground game going with William Stanback. Even though he was out, they got it going with Joshua Antwi, who played 
Walter Fletcher, who had a huge play, and Caleb Evans, who himself is is a good runner, but he's not a thrower. I don't think Montreal can do enough with Caleb Evans to win a second straight game. I would take Ottawa with Evans at the control for Montreal, but I'm taking the Owls if Fajardo plays. We are of one mind on this issue because I'm in the exact same boat. I think if Caleb Evans makes his second straight start, the Ottawa Red Blacks are a much better team with Dustin Crum at the helm than the Saskatchewan Rough Riders were last week with Jake Dolagala thrust into action, and they will win this matchup. But if Kogi Fajardo is back and healthy, he is the better quarterback. And he means the world to that Alouette's offense, which I think has some pretty good receivers in the likes of Austin Mack. If they have their starter back, then I'm going with the favorites in this one. The BC Lions will visit the Saskatchewan Rough Riders on Sunday night, where they are a monster nine and a half point favorites on the road. Mason Fine is reportedly out for two to three weeks with a hamstring injury, leaving Jake Dolagala as the presumed starter in Saskatchewan. Can the Riders do anything to keep this game close as they welcome the high-flying Lions to Mosaic Stadium? I did some quiet pontification on this when I first saw the line come out. I said, wow, that's a big spread. I, I don't know if the Lions can cover that in a tough place to play like Mosaic Stadium. I think I'm going to pick them to cover. And then I realized it's Jake Dolagala quarterback. And all that flew out the window because there is no way that Jake Dalagala can go against the BC Lions defense and have even a average performance. The Riders are going to be in a rough, rough situation this week at home. I think the Lions are going to run away with this game. I agree with you. I do not believe in Jake Dolagala. I love the throw that he made late in touchdown Atlantic. And then when he got more opportunity to play again, you know, after fine got hurt, I, I didn't think he was impressive at all. The lions, I think are under pressure here to keep pace or depending on what happens in the Winnipeg game, take first place in the West division. They can't afford, despite their impressive record to sit down and be complacent. They're going to pour it on here. I think the lions win big as well. It's time for Hodges' heritage moment. On this day in 2016, Calgary Stampeders quarterback Bo Levi Mitchell revealed that he'd been fined for a series of tweets insinuating that the Saskatchewan Rough Riders were playing fast and loose with the CFL's roster rules. A subsequent investigation by the league determined that the Riders were practicing with players who weren't under contract and paying them under the table. Saskatchewan was fined $60,000 and their salary cap was lowered by $26,000 for the violation. Mitchell acknowledged that he could have gone about handling the situation differently, but didn't regret blowing the whistle on Saskatchewan's misconduct. JC, this has since been known as the pre-practice squad scandal. Your thoughts? Well, I think Chris Jones isn't truly sticking to his guns in Edmonton right now, because if he wanted that team to be any better, he'd be pulling this one out again. Only $26,000 off the salary cap? That's nothing. Get some talent in there right now, Jones. Theoretically, that amount came because that's how much they paid, right, to 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 get players to stay in Regina under the table. But the pre-practice squad will live in infamy. And anytime somebody says something like, oh, the CFL is just going to the dogs or the CFL is just it's like, well, less than 10 years ago, arguably the best player in the league was the one to break the news that another team was cheating. So if the league wasn't Going to the dogs then. I don't see how it's going to the dogs now. The CFL, I think, is in a better place now than it was in 2016. Certainly, just this this situation illustrating exactly that. What a mess that was that year at Ryderville. Just take a moment to appreciate how the status of the two people involved in this has so dramatically changed in the last number of years. In 2016, Chris Jones, he's coming off the 2015 Grey Cup win in Edmonton. He's arguably, you know, the best, if not, or one of the best, if not the best coach in the league. He's everybody's darling as he tries to turn around the Saskatchewan Rough Riders. And Bo Levi Mitchell is the best quarterback in the CFL. Where what? Six years later, Chris Jones is at the helm of an 0 9 team, only protected 
based on the guarantees in his contract. And Bo Levi Mitchell has looked just dreadful for the Hamilton Tiger Cats. A lot can change in a very short period of time in this league. For the record, 2016 was seven years ago. Seven years, Jason. I'm not very good at that. That shows. You also are not good at recognizing roughing the passer. It's now time for the three-minute drill. Here we go. Laval University star receiver Kevin Mattel is facing multiple charges stemming from an alleged 2021 altercation. What can you tell us about that? Well, it appears that he's not going to serve any jail time for this. It's it's a relatively minor offense, and he could, in fact, play and is expected to play for the Rouge or this upcoming season as the reigning Heck Crichton Trophy winner. These allegations stem from prior to that season, after the 2021 season, his first in Laval. I don't think it's going to hurt him necessarily on this side of the border or this upcoming season very much, but certainly it's going to be something that NFL teams take note of as they try and evaluate this prospect from a lower level of competition and judge whether or not he's worthy of an opportunity. This is going to be a check in the wrong column for Mattel going forward. Kadeem Carey recorded seven carries for 44 yards in his return from injury for the Calgary Stampeders last week. Is he still the team's unquestioned best running back? I do, but I don't think it's a huge difference between him and Diedrich Mills. I think Mills is, you know, I I think he's third right now in CFL rushing behind Brady Oliveira and AJ Olette, and for good reason. He, you know, if Kadeem Carey is an A+, I think that Diedrich Mills is a B plus or, or even an A minus. Like neither of these guys are the reason the Stamps are losing. That is all having to do with that quarterback position. Chris Jones told Trey Ford that he should stay in his lane after Canadian QB criticized the Elks' conservative play calling late in their loss to Winnipeg. Did Ford overstep with his comments? I don't think he did, right? He was, you know, a little bit critical of the play calling just in the sense that he would have wanted to be more aggressive. But he also said he'll do whatever the coach asks him to do. Now, I saw some people push back against this article and allege that we mischaracterized Chris Jones' comments against Trey Ford here. Let me be clear. Ford's name and his comments were directly referenced in the question to Chris Jones, at which point Chris Jones said, we need to worry about executing and we should stay in our lane. Now, he didn't say Ford should stay in his lane, but the only person not in his lane at that time was Ford, who Jones had just been asked about. If that isn't directly calling out your quarterback, well, I hope the uh, Cotton County cotton candy clouds taste very good in the fantasy land that you're living in (laughs) craig dickinson said mason fine will miss two or three weeks due to a hamstring injury is that a big loss for the riders it is i mean mason fine has not blown the doors off in riderville but he showed meaningful signs of progress in that team's win over ottawa recently i do think that jake dolagala is going to be a step down from the north texas product the BC Lions have signed edge rusher Nick Usher to their practice roster following his release from the Alouettes. Is that a smart decision? It's a very savvy move. Sione Tahema is currently on the injured list. I don't know when he will be back. And the Lions have had to move defensive tackle Woody Barron to the edge at times to fill that American defensive end spot. I think they need a little bit of a spark on the other side across from Matthew Betch. Usher, Usher is the guy who can provide it. The Saskatchewan Rough Riders released veteran receiver Darrell Walker. Was that a surprise? Not really. I think he was a guy who was brought in to you know, kind of reignite, rekindle his career. But at the end of the day, he was very much surpassed by guys like Sean Bain Jr., Tevin Jones, Sam Emelis, who have all had breakout seasons. Plus, we know Kean Schaefer-Baker should be returning from injury soon. The Montreal Alouettes signed rookie quarterback Reese Udinsky to their practice roster. What can you tell us about him? I really like him as a prospect coming out of the Richmond Spiders. He's a guy who I think fits the CFL game and can have some success here if given the opportunity. 
the Ottawa Red Blacks removed Brandon Dandridge from their six-game injured list, an indication that he could be ready to return from a foot injury. Is that good news for the team? It is. I think Brandon Dandridge is one of the most underrated players in the CFL since he has been performing return duties for that team and had a return touchdown, had a couple of pick sixes. I think he's, he's started to get his name out there. People recognize how good he is, but man, he is a special player. That's very good news for our nation. The Grey Cup Festival has been officially announced with this year's CFL Awards show set to take place in Niagara Falls. Are you excited to check out the scenery? It's exciting for me. I've been to Niagara Falls, but not in my own recollection. I was a very small child when I went, so I am thrilled to be able to go and check it out while under the guise of you know, doing my job. The Saskatchewan Rough Riders acquired Antonio Pipkin from the Hamilton Tiger Cats following an injury to Mason Fine. Can he help their quarterback group? I think he can. I mean, Antonio Pipkin is not going to be a starter in this league anytime soon, but this is a team that needed some veteran prowess, that needed a guy who can at least get them out of a game, and someone with some experience. And Antonio Pipkin fits all of those things. He's also a very good runner with the football that might be a larger part of the offense, especially with Shea Patterson potentially taking on a larger role in Ryderville. So I like this move a lot for them. On that note, we thank you as always for listening to the Three Donation podcast. Justin Dunk sends his regrets. He was trying to do today's show from the University of Guelph, where the Griffins are currently having their training camp. And uh, his setup, needless to say, fell apart just like the 2022 Guelph Griffins did in the standings. So we he will be back next week along with Mr. Dunk.